All right, in our last lesson, and by the way, we're still in lesson 101 in your book. This is part B, and it may look like it, there might be a part C. I'm not quite so sure, but in our last lesson, which was part one of the five warnings found in Luke chapter 12, we actually only covered two of those warnings given by Jesus first and foremost to who? His disciples. He was speaking directly to his disciples, possibly the 12 apostles and also the 70 other disciples. So he was speaking first and foremost to them, but secondly, he was also speaking to a crowd that was so loud, uh, not loud, maybe they were loud, but, but so crowded. There were so many people that they were actually trampling over one another, and we saw that in chapter 12, verse 1. And we discussed last time the dangers of being a spiritual hypocrite in verses 1 to 12 and we also discuss the danger of covetousness two dangers the dangers of being a, a hypocrite and the danger of being uh, covetous and the the covetous issue was illustrated for us by the lord's parable of the rich farmer who was called a fool by the lord god and if there's one person you do not want to call you a fool who is it the Lord God. But this man was called a fool because he had focused his heart on the things of this world instead of the things of heaven. And in doing so, what happened to him? He lost everything, didn't he? He had gained those coveted bigger and better barns of this world, but in the process, he was a fool because he had lost his own soul. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Well, in today's lesson, we're going to consider the final three of the negative warnings that were given to, to us by the Lord in this 12th chapter. And those three negative warnings were beware of hypocrisy, beware of covetousness. Today, we're going to discuss the third one. What? Beware of worry. And I originally had not intended to really dwell on this subject because we have covered it previously back in our Sermon on the Mount study because this same passage basically is found back in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. How many of you were here when we discussed that? Raise your hand. Okay, that's not really too many of you. Um, so as I kept meditating about, well, should I just gloss over this subject of worry or should we get into it again? I thought, you know, because the Lord himself repeated <laughs> this subject in just his three short year ministry, uh, he must be telling us that we, you know, he knows how prone we are. To worry, and it's because he repeated it, I, I thought, well, I guess each and every one of us, even if we were here when we discussed the Sermon on the Mount, subject of worry, topic of worry, um, that we could all use a refresher course, couldn't we? How many of you could use a refresher course on the subject of worry? I know both of my hands go up. So I need, I need a refresher course on this subject, and therefore, um, I don't know if we're going to get to the last two positive warnings, which are to be watchful for the Lord's return and to be discerning. I'm not sure if we'll get that far or not. I have no idea how far we'll get today. The, the foolish, wealthy farmer of the Lord's parable last time that we discussed this um, this discourse. I guess you could call this a discourse. I wondered why they don't call chapter 12 a discourse, and I guess the reason is, you know, in other words, a sermon. 
Some people have called it the Lord's interrupted discourse because he is interrupted several times, but he's always interrupted. So, But I got to thinking, I guess the reason they don't we don't have this listed as a sermon is because really most of it is given in parables. So we're counting most of this chapter as parables rather than as a discourse. But anyway, in the, the, the foolish wealthy farmer, had been uh, concerned or worried about his problem of having too much. Oh me, what am I going to do with all my surplus grain? But the Lord's disciples and his followers were probably tempted to worry that they might not have enough. The Lord himself, remember, during his ministry, his time here on, on earth, well, especially during his three-year ministry, didn't own anything but the clothes on his back, did he? I mean, he didn't even have a home. He didn't have a place to call home to, to, uh, while he was here on earth. Now, he stayed many times in Peter's house, or he stayed with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. But he said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And that, of course, is as the Son of Man. He didn't own anything. But as the Son of God, what is the truth? Absolutely, he owns it all. He owns everything. So as we've seen, those who would follow the Lord Jesus were asked to be willing to give up their creature comforts and even leave behind their occupations, whether they were fishermen or whatever they did for a living, tax collectors. They were even to be willing to leave behind their families and to lose their potential inheritance in order to serve him. Some of them, as we discovered with the man who had been born blind, were even put out of the synagogue and therefore they were totally ostracized from society. So much so that they couldn't even earn a living and we have discussed that in the past. Remember back in his ordination sermons, not only to his 12 apostles back in Matthew chapter 10 but also uh, before he sent out the 70 disciples, he had told them to travel very lightly, not even to take extra shoes and a purse with them. Uh, so that they would be forced to depend on God for their to meet their needs. And also, they were to do that so that they would be a testimony to others that God did indeed meet their needs. Well, again, because they needed to be reminded of God's provisionary, protective, and providential care, the Lord Jesus spoke, as I said, first and foremost here to his disciples. And... Uh, and you can see that in verse 22 I have. Let me see what that verse is. Yeah, verse 22, that's where we're going to start our lesson this morning. It says, and he said unto his disciples. So first and foremost, he is speaking to his disciples. But we know that also in this section we're going to be looking at next, there were many others listening as well. And we know that based on Peter's interruption, which you can look at in verse 41. So we know that there were others listening. And in this massive Judean crowd, remember, where is he? He's down in Judea. He's not up in Galilee anymore. He's in Judea, near Jerusalem. Uh, so in that crowd, there were very likely those who were thinking of putting their faith and trust in, in him, in Jesus. And they also needed to hear what he had to say about not worrying, but rather trusting God for the care of his own. In the Lord's parable of the rich farmer, the rich fool, which was given in response, remember, to a dispute between two brothers, 
over their father's inheritance. That's why he gave that parable was in response to that dispute. In that parable, we learned that we are not to have a worldly attitude about the non-necessities of life. We are not to be focused on laying up earthly treasures for our own selfish purposes, which is what that man was doing. It was all for himself so that he can eat, could eat, drink, and be merry the rest of his life. We, um, so we're not to lay up treasures for our own selfish purposes, but we are to focus on heavenly treasures, aren't we? To we're laid up treasures in heaven where they can't be destroyed. In our look now at his third warning, and this we're going to see in verses 22 to 34, he teaches us about having a righteous attitude concerning the necessities of life. The farmer was worried about the non-necessities. He had all the necessities. But now he's going to teach us about the necessities. What are the necessities of life? Food, drink, shelter, clothing. And he's also going to teach us about not worrying and having a righteous attitude about our life, our lifespan, the time of our lives. While the wealthy man may have been tempted into the dangerous snare of trusting in his riches, the poor, the poor man can just as easily be tempted to doubt God's providence and to doubt God's protection. While the rich often trust in the false security of their prosperity, wasn't that what he was doing, the farmer? He was he had a false security in his prosperity. Thought he could sit back, kick off his shoes, eat, drink, and be merry, you know, go into retirement and be set for the rest of his life. That was a false security in his prosperity. While the rich have that tendency, the poor often worry over a false insecurity because of their poverty. So instead of saying, well, I'm secure, I can eat, drink, and be merry, they say, what am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? How am I going to clothe myself? What am I going to have to live in? Uh, how long is my life going to live? be? I've got to do all I can to extend my life. So that's a false insecurity because of their poverty. What we see is both the haves and the have-nots have made the mistake of putting their attention and their concern more on mammon. And when I say mammon, I'm talking about material things, not just money, but the things of this world, mammon. Put their trust in mammon rather than on God. Matthew 20, uh, 6.24 said, No man can serve Two masters. You cannot serve God and the things of this world. And that's simply another way to state the first of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. If we serve mammon, which is money or materialism, uh, stuff, if we serve the physical world, or if we spend our time worrying about money, or materialism, or the things of this world, which include even our own lives, then what we are doing is we are putting another God before Jehovah God. The point is that we are not to focus on what we do have, nor are we to put the focus on what we do not have. Rather, we are to seek to put our affections and our thoughts and our concerns where, ladies? 
on the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Remember Matthew 6:33? You all know that verse. Guess what? We have a repeat of it in verse 31 of Luke chapter 12. Although it's worded a little different, it says, "But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things, these other things will be added unto you." So in Luke 12 verses 22 to 34, Jesus gave his men and the rest of the crowd that was listening in on this, at least five reasons why they were not to worry about material things. So that we're going to start with that. And um, have you heard the little cliche, today is the tomorrow we worried about yesterday. <laughs> today is the tomorrow we worried about yesterday. How true that is. All right, let's read verses 22 to 34 and get into our subject of worry. All right, here we go. And he said unto his disciples, that of course is Jesus, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life. You know what take no thought means, ladies? Say it. Don't worry. Exactly. Don't worry for your life. What ye shall eat, neither for the body, what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat. In other words, the life is more than food. And the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? And which of you... Um, with taking thought or with worrying can add to his stature one cubit. If ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought, why do you worry for the rest? Now here's another thing we're commanded to do. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not, and yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothe the grass which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And seek not ye what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things, but rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I love that. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that ye have and give alms. Provide yourself bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. A thief speaks of sudden loss, and a moth speaks of gradual loss gradual waste. All right, and then the very last verse, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Okay, the Lord here was telling his followers how to have a godly righteousness about material things. First of all, you don't live your life for them as the rich farmer and also as those two covetous brothers who were quarreling over their father's inheritance back in verse 13. So first of all, you don't live your life for them. And secondly, you don't worry about them. You don't worry about them. You take no thought 
for the essentials. That means you don't worry about them. Jesus says that life is more than food. Life is more than meat. Life is more than the meat of these bodies, we could even say. Life is more than flesh and bone. And our bodies are more than what we put, put on them, our raiment, our clothing. It is not all about eating, drinking, and being merry. It's not all about eating, drinking, looking great, having a great time, having a wonderful big home, uh, what we look like, what we live in. That's not what it's all about. Our bodily needs and our wants are not to consume our minds and hearts because our lives consist far more than the things we, you know, put in them and the clothes we put on them and the houses that we live in. <laughs> what we are and what we will be for all of eternity is far, far. I can't say the word far enough. <laughs> far, far more important than what we eat and what we wear and what we live in and how long our lifespans are today. As far as the physical daily matters are concerned, we should pray that we might learn what the Apostle Paul learned. What did he learn? Something very important. And when he wrote these words, you know where he was? He was in a prison. How would you feel in a prison? I don't know unless I was there, but I guess God would give me the grace when I'm there. But Paul wrote that he had learned to be content in whatever circumstances he might find himself. He had learned to be content. Can you say that? Have you learned to be content in whatever circumstance? Or it says whatever state. <laughs> How many of you have lived in different states? Uh, were you content in your other state? I used to live up in Illinois. Now I live in North Carolina. I've learned to be content in both, but I like North Carolina a whole lot better. A whole, I'm a whole lot more content down here in the warm weather. But he said he learned to be content whether he was poor or prosperous. That's what we need to, if, whether we're poor or prosperous, we need to learn to be content. Whether we're full or hungry, free or in bonds. Uh, healthy or sick, we could add to that all kinds of different things. Need to learn to be content whether we're married uh, or not married. A lot of young girls, single girls, girls aren't content. Why? Because they want to be married so bad. And then they get married and guess what? They're not content because they <laughs> rather not be married maybe sometimes. Or um, maybe they're not content with the one they did marry. But that's not godliness. That's sin. We're to be content in any and every situation that comes our way. Um, and we can be that. We can be content in all circumstances if our focus is where? On Christ and the glory that awaits us in heaven. It really changes everything when your focus is seeking after the kingdom of God. And then you understand, you know, all these things we're going to be talking about, that he's in control and he has a purpose. He's orchestrated everything in your life. Learn to be content with it because he's the one in charge. All right, if we're worrying about physical matters, our focus is on something or someone or some circumstance or some event other than God. Worrying, then, as I said, it becomes a form of idolatry. Worry makes us a slave to whatever it is that we are worried about or whatever we are anxious about. And to the degree that we are slaves to something else, like a bond slave, to something else, you're a bond slave to worry, then you're not being a bond slave to 
God. And we're all to be bond slaves to servants of God. So Jesus was saying that because God is the master of this universe, not mammon, this world was not started by a piece of little material that accidentally came into existence and began all the mammon. God is the one who is in control of He is the master of this universe. And because he is, those who belong to him need not to be worrisome. Our only responsibility as his bondservants is um, to be faithfully obedient and to trust in him because he is indeed God Almighty. He is the creator of the universe. Therefore, he is sufficient and he is sovereign. So worry is nothing less than S-I-N for the Christian. Worry is a sin. You know, when I used to stand before the bedroom window and look out for my son's headlights to come up the driveway, and I couldn't go to sleep until I saw those headlights coming down. I did the same thing for my daughters, but I don't know why. I guess because the son was the first one to drive, you know, and how boys can be. (laughs) And so I, you know, I would just work myself up into a frenzy until I saw those headlights. That's not, I wasn't trusting in in the sovereignty of God, was it? No, and I became a slave to that worry. My husband said, get in bed. You know, why is it that men don't seem to worry as much as women? They're so practical. He'll just just say, worrying isn't going to do any good, Catherine. Well, I know that, but I have to do it anyway. (laughs) It's part of my job description. (laughs) But anyway, worry is a sin. And uh, it does demonstrate distrust in the providence of God. It also demonstrates distrust in the promises of God. Not only the providence of God, but the promises of God. Does he not, for example, uh, promise that he will supply all of our need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus? And doesn't he tell us that we can cast all our, not some of our cares, but all of our cares on him? Boy, how many times have I said that verse to myself? You know, I can cast all my cares on him because he cares for me. 1 Peter 5, 7. Worry in a believer is always due to a lack of faith or to little faith. And whatsoever is not of faith is sin, it says in Romans 14, 23. So there's no way we can get around it. Every time we worry, we're sinning. Worry is the opposite of contentment. Worry is the opposite of peace. Did you know where the word for worry originated? I'm so glad to find out it didn't originate with the Greeks. <laughs> for once, a word didn't originate with the Greeks, especially this word. It originated with you Germans. <laughs> word worry came from the Germans, and it's a word that meant to choke or to strangle. Isn't that exactly what worry does? Doesn't it just choke and strangle the joy out of our lives? It does. Worry has a way of just getting you around the net and choking you. Does it not mentally, emotionally, and uh, physically choke us with its accompanying stress? and um, tension. You know how many people are sick physically and even in mental institutions because of worry? Do you know how many things we could worry about and just make ourselves absolutely sick? Do you know how many things right now I could just think about and make myself sick to, to death worrying about? 
you know, just not only your immediate family and all the potential things that could happen, and sometimes do happen, but you could worry about them, uh, but you could also, you could worry about your own lifespan, and, and then you could worry about the world situation. Now, I could really get hung up there with everything that's going on in the world today. The, the presidential election, I could get sick about. I could get sick about a lot of things. What's going on over in the Middle East? And But that would be strangling myself for no reason because I have to remember who is still on the throne. God. God knows exactly what's going on. When we're worried... Our, all of our efforts and our works for God and, and his kingdom and striving to, you know, to, to be righteous, to be Christ-like, all of that gets choked out. Isn't that exactly what we saw with the seed, the parable of the sower and the seed? One of the seeds that fell on um, ground, uh, thorny ground, what happened to that seed? It didn't take, well, it took a little bit of root, but it got choked out. You know, choked out, strangled out because of the cares of this world. It got choked out with the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this life. And it said, this was in, um, well, you can see it just over in Luke eight fourteen, that that seed brought forth no fruit to perfection. <clears throat> How many people do you see like this in our churches? You know, they, the seed looks like it takes root for a while, but pretty soon they disappear and you never see them again because they got choked out by all the cares and the concerns and the worries and the materialism and the things of this life. And so, therefore, they brought no fruit to perfection for the Lord and his kingdom. If you are here, Corey Tenboom, I have a little quote that I wrote from Corey Tenboom. She said, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow it empties today of its strength that is so good to think about worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow I can stand up here and worry all day but that doesn't mean something sorrowful will not happen tomorrow all it means is I'm zapping my strength today for what awaits me tomorrow and if there is sorrow tomorrow I need the strength, don't I? That's a very good quote to remember from Corey Tenboom, and she knew what she was talking about. So if you're prone to worry about matters of physical necessity, which include everything in this world, you know, all the physical things of this world, then ask yourself the question, doesn't God own everything? Doesn't he own the cattle on a thousand hills? Doesn't he say that the world is his and the fullness thereof? Uh, and the answer to the question, of course, God owns everything. God owns everything. Well, ask yourself another question then, if you're anxious about something that maybe is happening right now in your life. And if something isn't happening right now in your life, guess what? It's going to. It will. Because man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. We're born to trouble. And um, so ask yourself another question. Doesn't God control everything? Doesn't he own everything? And doesn't he control everything? And again, what is the answer? If you believe the, the God of this Bible, even if you don't believe the God of this Bible, it's still true. He does, he does control everything. He is sovereign God. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he 
changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. That's found in Daniel chapter 2. It says in Acts 17, God that made the world and all things therein, he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Everything we have, our life, our breath, everything we own, our next heartbeat, all belongs to him. He's the one who gives it all. And, of course, we all know this one, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. Then a third very self-confronting question to ask is, doesn't God provide everything? And that is also to be answered in the positive because, of course, God provides everything, as I just said. He provides even our next heartbeat. <clears throat> our sufficiency is of God, it says in 2 Corinthians 3, 5. According as his divine power hath he given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, 2 Peter 1, 3. So isn't it kind of foolish for those of us who belong to Jehovah Jireh, that, you know, God has many names. One of the names he has in the Old Testament is, it's in the book of Genesis, Jehovah Jireh. Do you know what it means? The Lord will provide. Isn't it kind of foolish for those of us who belong to the Lord who provides to worry that somehow in our particular situation, you know, we're unique, <laughs> he's not going to provide? If that's the case, we'd be the only ones that ever had that happen for those who belong to him. Now, I'm not saying for those who don't belong to him. They have everything in the world to worry about. You know, before I was saved, I was a worrier. I'm not as bad of a worrier as I used to be. I used to really be a worrier. You know what I worried about? I was obsessed about death. Because I saw, I saw some deaths that happened right in front of me, and I got really obsessed about death. What's going to happen? But that was a good worry, really, because the, the unsaved need to be worried about things like death. But I was so worried I was phobic. I had anxiety attack, attacks. I couldn't sleep at night. And praise the Lord, he uh, brought some people into my life who shared with me the gospel. But I, So the world has every right, every need to worry, because what do they face ahead? Without the Lord, they, they face eternity. Well, like the foolish farmer, their soul, they'll even lose their eternal soul. There is a difference. Here's the difference between worry and concern. Worry demonstrates doubt. Worry demonstrates doubt and distrust in God's providence and his provisionary and providential care, his protective care. Whereas concern, that's why I like to use the word concern, concern demonstrates love. Worry is usually self-focused. A lot of worries and anxieties are usually centered in self. We saw this with Martha. Remember when Martha was all distracted and worried and bent out of shape? It was really, if you could trace it back far enough, it was all about Martha wasn't it? It was a self-centered. Worries are usually self-centered. Um, concerns, on the other hand, are, are about others. And it's, there, it's right to, for us to have concern. Concern demonstrates love. Now, we are to be concerned about the lost, aren't we? Yes, absolutely. We're to be concerned. That's a love thing. We're to be concerned about those who are sick. 
those who are shut in, those who are widows, those who are needy. We're to be concerned about this country and the direction we're headed. We're to be concerned about the young people. We're to be concerned about sin. We're to be concerned about rebellion. But that's based on love. Worry is, is, is all about doubt. All right, so there's your difference. Self-focused worries not only have a way of eating away at a person, but they also demonstrate a doubtful mind. And that's exactly what the Lord told us in verse 29. Look at verse 29. He says, And seek not ye what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of a doubtful mind. You see, worrying carries with it the sin of doubt. Doubt occurs when our eyes are removed from God's providence and they become fixed instead on the cares and the concerns of this world. Isn't that what happened with Peter? Peter was doing really well as he was walking across the water to Jesus until he took his eyes off of Christ and put his eyes on the cares and concerns and the storms and the troubles of this life. And then what happened? He was he worried and he began to sink. And that's what will happen to you and I if we take our focus off of Christ and we get them instead, our focus on the cares and concerns and the troubles and the trials of this life, which is, I mean, they're all around us. But don't focus on them. Keep walking on top of the water by focusing on Christ. Well, what are we to do when circumstances arise in our lives that appear to be potential situations for anxiety? You know what you're to do? You're to do exactly, and I am to do exactly what God's word commands us to do. We are to be careful for nothing. That means, that's King James' word, for be anxious for nothing. We're to be worried about nothing, but in everything by prayer and thanks, uh, supplication with thanksgiving. We're to let our requests be made known unto God. And then if we pray, as I just read, with thanksgiving, if we pray... Let him know our, our concerns and, and our prayer requests. We pray with thanksgiving, don't we? What does that mean? That means we're anticipating his care. We're, we're casting all our cares on him. And in thanksgiving, we say, Lord, we know you're going to resolve this according to your will. So now I can just take that burden off of me. I've given it to you. So we pray and we supplicate with thanksgiving, not with worry. You know, you don't pray and then just go right on worrying. <laughs> and when we do it the right way, when we pray with thanksgiving, knowing and anticipating that he's in control, he's going to do things according to his will, then what happens? The peace of God that passes all understanding. The world can't understand this kind of peace that we can have in the midst of... Have any of you experienced that peace that passes all understanding? I have. I mean, just beyond understanding, I thought, how can I be, I, several times in my life, I have felt like I was just in the clouds in terrible, terrible situations. And yet, there was that peace. And so he keeps his promises. He says that peace that passes all understanding will keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Notice that the promise of God is not that he will give us peace instead of problems, right? But he will give us peace in spite of problems. Problems are actually good for us. They help us to grow spiritually. The peace of God gives us, uh, I mean, the, 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 um, the peace God gives us in the midst of the problems helps us not to worry while we grow in the problem. 
So worry not only demonstrates a distrust of our master's providence, but it also demonstrates doubt of God as our father. If he, remember, we discussed this a couple weeks ago when we looked at um, Luke 11, verses 11 to 13. If even earthly sinful fathers will provide and protect for their children, you know, an earthly, even a sinful father um, wouldn't give his son a stone if he asked for bread. He wouldn't give him a scorpion if he asked for an egg. Now, there are awful, horrible fathers without any natural affection who would do these things, but we're talking about a normal father wouldn't do those things. So if even earthly fathers provide for their children and protect their children, how much more will our holy, heavenly father provide for and protect his own children? Now, in, in these verses from Luke 12 and also from the cross-reference over in Matthew 6, verses 26 to 34, we can easily find a good number of solid biblical reasons for why worry is an activity that the Christian has absolutely no business participating in. First of all, worthy, um, worthy. worry is not worthy. <laughs> worry is unnecessary. We're going to look at all these. It's also unproductive. It's also unfaithful. Worry is unchristian. Worry is unrighteous. And you know what? It's not given here in Luke, but over in Matthew's account, we are even told that worry is not healthy. It isn't healthy for you to worry. Peter Marshall said that ulcers should not be the badge of the Christian. <laughs> That's good, too. So, first of all, let's talk about worry is not necessary. It's unnecessary. Worry is unnecessary for the child of God. And to demonstrate this, the Lord used birds. And in this case, I won't sing to you that song again. I'll spare you that. <laughs> His eye is on the ravens. But he used ravens here. Uh, in, in verse 24, as his example of God's sovereign care. He wanted his listeners to think through some obvious conclusions to questions that they could ask themselves. If God provides food for the fowl of the air, will he not provide food for those who he has made in his own image? Now, did he make the birds and the bees and the animals in his image? Do they have an eternal soul? No, and yet he cares for them, doesn't he? He is their creator. He cares for them. But how much more is he going to care for those he is the father of? Not only is he our creator, but he is the father of all believers. So the answer is, will he, uh, of course he's going to provide for his own. All worry, therefore, for the genuine child of God is unnecessary. If the fowl of the air can be fed without doing any sowing. Now, they don't go out there and sow the grain and reap and then gather together in barns. If he's going to provide for them without all that work, now they work for their food, but they don't sow and reap and gather. Will God's own spiritual children not have food when they do sow and reap and gather into barns? Doesn't God protect the welfare of birds by providing them with an abundant food source? He does. You don't see birds starving to death. I mean, they, he has, there's plenty of food out. Now, they have to work for it, but he provides it. Does he not protect their welfare by providing them also with the instinct 
necessary to be able to find those food sources? Did you ever wonder how a little baby bird out of the nest and maybe on its own, how does he know where to go for food? Well, God has provided him with that instinct to know where to find food and um, how to raise their offspring. So why would he do less for his own children? You don't, you know, it says consider the birds, consider the ravens. You know what that is? That's a command. We learn, and over and over again, throughout the whole Bible, especially in some of the Proverbs and Psalms, we are told to study the animal world and the insect world, because you know what they do? They teach us a lot of things. Do you ever, for example, see a bird out there worrying (laughs) about where his next meal is going to come from, or what he's going to wear today, or where he's going to build his nest? Birds don't worry. Birds aren't covetous. Oh, that bird has a bigger nest than I do. (laughs) And they're not hypocrites. You don't see a little sparrow pretending to be a raven or whatever, you know, a stork or something. We are to consider. You know what? It's biblical to be bird watchers. It is biblical to be a bird watcher because we are told to consider the birds. Now, as, as I mentioned several times, now birds do work. Bees work. I mean, animal world works. So this doesn't mean that we are just to sit back. And Some people have this attitude. Okay, God's in control. God is going to provide. So I'll just sit back and let him um, drop worms into my mouth. <laughs> There's only a few occasions, like when Elijah was fed by the ravens. I mean, that's not the normal. He, we are to work. We're to do our part, and of course, he will do his part. It says in Second Thessalonians 3.10, if any would not work, neither should he eat. Now, he doesn't approve of slothfulness, so we are to, to do our part. So anyway, a, a believer is not to worry because it's unnecessary and because he is more than a body. We are more than just a body. Life is more than meat, and the body is more than, the, than what we put on that meat. <laughs> if, if we were only physical beings, then material things um, could completely satisfy our needs, just like the birds are completely physical beings had to say they don't have a soul and therefore material things can completely satisfy them. Boy, my dogs are just so happy and so pleased whenever I feed them, especially when I put a little gravy on their food. That, that They're completely satisfied. But because we are more than physical beings, um, and we're spiritual beings as well, therefore material things alone do not satisfy, do they? They don't. You can have... You can have as much as this world has to offer, and you will find out that you still are not satisfied. Many people have found that to be true. Well, the Lord continued his discussion regarding the subject of worry by asking yet another thought-provoking question. And uh, this one is, uh, I didn't put the verse down, but it's, oh, 25, where he says, And which of you with taking thought, which means worrying about, can add to his stature one cubit. Now, there are two ways to interpret this particular verse because the word, the Greek word that is used for stature um, can mean the measure of, a, a measure of space or distance, and it can also mean a measure of time or age. 
Now, in this particular situation, therefore, it can mean that, you know, uh, worrying cannot add a cubit to your height, nor can it add to your lifespan. But I really think the Lord probably meant that it can't add to your lifespan. <laughs> because I don't know many people who worry about growing 18 inches taller. Now, they might not be happy with being short and maybe want to grow an inch or two or three, but 18 inches? A cubit is 18 inches. So I don't think he would use that as an example. Who, by worrying, can add 18 inches? This is a lifespan. In fact, worrying will actually do the opposite. Worry can cause the body to grow old prematurely. Worry is very unhealthy, as we talked about already. So the Lord was stressing the fact that worry is unproductive. Our main concern should not be over the the length of our physical life, because God himself has already numbered our days. Did you know that? God has already numbered our days. It says, seeing man's days are determined, the number of his months are with thee, God. Thou hast appointed his bounds that cannot be passed. There is a certain day that God has assigned for me to enter into his presence, and I am not going to exceed that bound, no matter what I do. That's what the word of God says. So our concern should be for our spiritual life, which will last for how long? Eternity. And not be so hung up on this little short but a vapor life. I mean, this life is just a tiny, tiny drop in a bucket compared to the next life. It's not logical that people put all the emphasis on this life and not on the next life, is it? They don't think it through. Anyway, it's unnecessary. Worry is also unfaithful. The Lord's next warning in verse 28 uh, against worry, he says, um, has to do with little faith. He says, O ye of little faith, the believer who worries about the physical things of this world, this life is demonstrating what? Little faith. Little faith. You see, I got to thinking about that Syrophoenician woman who the Lord commended for her great faith. Now, she was very concerned about her daughter who was demon-possessed, wasn't she? She wasn't worried about her. She was concerned about her so much that she brought her to the great physician. She brought her to to Christ. Her focus was on Christ. And uh, she demonstrated not worry but concern. And she was commended for her great faith. Those of us who worry are being doubtful. And Jesus says we're showing little faith. Um, demonstrating little faith. We might have genuine saving faith, but we show forth weak, trusting faith. And that position is not at all logical. It is illogical for a Christian to believe that, that God gave him life. And if you're born again, that God not only gave you physical life, but he gave you spiritual life. And yet at the same time, doubt that he is somehow or another not powerful enough or not caring enough to sustain that life. See, it's not logical. It's not logical for a Christian to believe that God is God and yet also believe that he might somehow fail to bring to fulfillment something that he has already started. Doesn't he always finish what he began? 
doesn't he? Being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you is going to perform it. He's going to complete it. So it's unfaithful for the child of God who has had his soul saved from the second death. You know, never having to worry at all, be concerned at all about the eternal lake of fire. To worry, it's illogical to worry that our Heavenly Father cannot manage to provide our basic physical necessities. Doesn't he clothe the flowers of the, of the field with a beauty that surpasses even the most magnificent robe that King Solomon ever wore? And I'm sure he wore some beautiful outfits since he was one of the wealthiest men that ever lived, if not the wealthiest. Have you ever studied a flower, taken pictures of flowers and looked at them close up? Aren't they absolutely magnificent? Isn't the creator behind those flowers absolutely awesome? Providential? Um, just everything. He's the creator God and he has unlimited, unlimited power to be able to create not only one flower, but all the flowers, all the variety of flowers. It just, and we only see the ones in, in our little area, but if we took all the flowers all over the world, it just would blow us away. I can't imagine what heaven is going to look like. Hmm. Anyway, the analogy that he used in Luke 12, verses 27 and 28, is simple and logical. The same one who cares enough and is mighty enough to dress the quickly perishing lily will surely demonstrate, uh, I mean provide, excuse me, for the body that covers an immortal soul. There's no immortal soul inside of that lily, but there is within our bodies. So of course he's going to provide for our bodies. Worry merely, merely demonstrates that our circumstances and our own limited perspective, that's most of it, we have a limited perspective, we can't see like he can, that the those things are mastering us. Remember, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts higher than our thoughts, right? And he sees, he sees the end from the beginning. We can't see that perspective on things. So we need to just trust him. He's orchestrating everything for our good and his glory. Well, worry also demonstrates a misunderstanding or an ignorance of God's word and his character. The solution to worry is really found, where do you think? In this book right here. Because this is uh, where we come to know God's character and where we come to know his promises and where we are pricked in our conscience about the unbiblical nature of our worries. Now here's some of the verses that, if you haven't memorized them, work on memorizing them. These are verses that helped me through some really rough times in my life, and I know they can help you and probably have helped some of you. One is Isaiah 26, 3. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed or fixed, focused on thee, because he, the person, trusteth in thee. That's Isaiah 26, 3. Then there's Psalm 4, 8. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. I live out in the woods back, you know, way back in the woods with no nearby neighbors. And over the years, I am often, often, probably more times alone than when Frank is there because he's a traveling person. And people have often asked me, how can you go to sleep at night, especially now that I have an empty nest and I'm there by myself? 
Juanita, Doris, you know what? Lord, you're in control. I can dwell safely in your presence. Put that head down on the pillow and I'm gone. <laughs> He's in control. Psalm 91.1, For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. Yes, we have guardian angels. And I pray for those angels. Since my son is so high up in the air, I'm praying for those angels all the time to keep charge over him. This is another one I've memorized. Psalm 119.165, Great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. I, I quote that verse a lot to myself. Not only if somebody maybe says something that I could take offensively, great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. I'm not. I'm just going to let that roll right off my back like a duck in water. But the other thing is a fan can be stumble. Great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall stumble them. Nothing shall worry them and cause them to stumble. That's a good verse. Then there's, of course, and I think our pastor used this one yesterday, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. John 14.1. Then there's also John 14.27. Peace I leave unto you. My peace, Jesus is speaking. My peace. Did Jesus ever worry? He knew what was ahead. Oh, I'm so glad I don't know what is ahead of me. Talk about worrying. I could really get worried. I'm so glad I don't know the future. But he did, and yet he didn't worry. And he says he gives us his kind of peace, not as the world gives. I wouldn't want the world, the peace of the world. The world has a false peace. But he says, um, my peace I give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And then there's Romans 8, 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And Colossians 3.15, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Philippians 4, so we've already said this one several times, but it's be anxious for nothing. You know what that means? Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything and pray with thanksgiving, not with worry. And we've already talked about that. And then casting all your cares upon him because he careth for thee. That's First Peter 5, 7. It is the, and there's many, many, many more. You know, they say there's um, 365 fear knots in the Bible, one for every day of the year. And worry and fear kind of go hand in hand, don't they? God hath not given us a spirit of fear. God hath not given us a spirit of worry, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The Christian, uh, it's the Christian who's not renewed and refreshed daily, daily in God's word, who leaves himself open for those fiery doubts, uh, darts of doubt, those fiery darts of doubt and worry. And they'll strike home. We need to be in this book. We need to constant. We need to hide God's word in our hearts so that we will not sin against Him by worrying. Worry also lowers the child of God to the level of the unbeliever, and that's what He says in verse thirty. He says, "For all these things do the nations of the world seek after." And over in Matthew's account, He said, "For after all these things do the Gentiles seek." You see, the lost. The Gentiles, meaning the uh, unsaved of the world, are left to their own materialistic search for things. They have absolutely no assurance that all will be well. 
They can't claim the promises of God if they're not the children of God. They're strangers to the better hope given by by God in Christ. And the hope that they do have. Now there's a lot of people out there in the world who have a hope, but it's very deficient. It's insufficient. It's a false hope. A lot of people have hope in lies. Do you know how many people believe lies? Lies. This world is full of lies. And many people are basing their hopes on lies. Evolutionism isn't true. It's such a lie. Islam is such a lie. Mormonism is a lie. All the, all the religions of the world except Christianity are lies. And there are millions and billions of people who are believing in lies. Few. Little flock. Notice he said little flock. Few find the straight. You know, if you know the truth, you are so privileged. We are so privileged. I often wonder, why, Lord, did you reveal the truth to me? There's so many out there who don't know the truth. We're so privileged, but we're responsible for that truth, aren't we? We're held more accountable because of it. Oh, get off on these tangents. All right. To worry is unchristian, therefore, is what the world does. To worry is unchristian because it demonstrates belief in a God who does not know what his own children need. What we are doing when we worry is being very much like the world, the unsafe. You know, we don't need, remember the prophets of um, Baal? How they got all worked up um, with a spiritual sweat when they were marching around the fire, I mean the the altar trying to have their God. They they were trying to wake him up. Or maybe he was out doing something and they needed to get his attention. We don't need to do that with our God to try to worry so much that we finally get his attention and, you know, get him into a state of awareness or, or wake him up if he's sleeping. That's that's acting like, like the pagans do toward their gods because their gods do need to be aroused because they don't exist. <laughs> but so it's to- totally unscriptural. It's foolish. It's unchristian. It's an unchristian concept of an all-knowing, all-powerful um, God of creation who knows even what we need before we ask. Of course he knows what we need before we ask. He knew about us before we even existed. Now, instead of seeking the things of, of, that the world seeks after, the things of this world, the Lord told his disciples in verse 31 that they were to seek the kingdom of God. And, of course, we know over in Matthew 6.33 it says, and his righteousness. And then all of these other things that have to do with this world are going to be added unto us. He'll take care of those things. The word for seek, I like it. It's a Greek word. It's zeteo. And it means, it's, I kind of almost hear zest in it, zeteo, to seek after with a zest. It means we're to go after 100% the kingdom of God. We're to pursue, we're to strive, just like strive to enter ye in at the narrow gate. We're to strive after the kingdom of God and his, his uh, righteousness. We're to aim at, it also can mean, we're to endeavor to get the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all those other things, don't worry about them. They'll be added unto you. He will take care of you. If he takes care of the ravens and if he takes care of the lilies, he's going to take care of you. Just as it is impossible to serve both God and mammon, 
Neither can we seek first both the worries and the concerns of this earthly life and the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Because two things cannot both be first. Now that's logical, isn't it? Even if somebody has twins, one of them has to be born before the other one. Two things cannot both be first. So therefore we can't seek first the things of this world and also seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. The root cause of worry is setting our affections on the things that are below and not on the things that are in heaven. Do you know, in a hundred years from now, some of us it's even less time. Maybe 10, 20, 50, but let's go safely a hundred. A hundred years from now, Is anything that went on in this earth going to matter other than what we did for Christ and souls that we helped bring into the kingdom and our Christ-likeness? Is anything else going to matter? Not at all. It's actually all going to be burned up one day. Everything on this earth, the Lord's going to build a whole new heaven and a whole new earth. If we can just keep that perspective always in mind, Now, 100 years from now, what's going to matter? Set your priorities according to that kind of thinking. All right. Well, so the Lord told us that worry is a sin because it's a demonstration of a lack of faith in God. And we certainly, think about this, we certainly cannot do a very good job of witnessing to the lost. Um, Those who are out in the world and they are stressed out. And they have every right to be when they look at the world situation. And, and they all know that death looms ahead for them. And, and they have a lot of things to be anxious about. We can't do a very good job of witnessing to this lost, worrying, stressed out, anxious world and encourage them to place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ if we ourselves are exhibiting stress and doubt. And worry. Can we? Pretty hard to do without being a hypocrite. So the question is to ask where is our heart? Where is our heart? If our heart is fixed on the things of this world and our life in this world, and that's it, then there's every every right you have every right to worry because there is nothing fair, nothing stable, nothing lasting about this world is there and it's getting less and less fair and just and righteous and (laughs) horrible but if your heart instead is fixed on the things of eternity then God's peace can keep you strong regardless of what comes your way and things will come your way they're guaranteed to come your way but where our heart where our treasure is there will our heart be also Right? That's how he ended this section. So that's a key question to ask ourselves. Where are our affections? What do you love the most? I hope the answer is that you love God first and foremost, above everything else, including your own families, including your own children, husbands, grandchildren. God first. And everything else will fall into place. Eventually. It will.